Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with the world's finest thinkers and teachers, exploring Sharon's latest book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. So, hi. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm Lily. I'm Sharon's person, and um, I'm very happy to be back at the helm of this challenge this year. This is the eighth year uh, this challenge has taken place, and we just, I just checked a few minutes ago, and we have 20,083 people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's pretty terrific, and it's a lot of, it's about 4,000 people who have never practiced meditation before, and a lot, maybe half, who have never done this challenge before. So it's a, it's a great group, and I think it's um, just such a good time to, to settle into practice. So um, I wanted to first just thank our hosts here tonight at New York Insight. How many of you have uh, been here before to this place? Okay, so some, some new some newbies. Um, part of why we started doing these events here in New York is because there's so many great resources here in the city for meditation. There's a really uh, great community here at New York Insight. They offer a wide variety of programming, um, really just high-level Sharon teaches here a few times a year. And so I encourage you to check out their offerings if you're if you're looking for a place to to practice. Um, I wanted to tell you, um, I'm going to turn it around. <laughs> okay, so um, I think most of you know that this challenge kind of came about because of Sharon's book, Real Happiness. This one right here, the orange one. Not to be confused with the other orangish-colored orange books of hers. Um, and uh, the book originally came out um, in the time of year that was right before February. And since February had 28 days, my predecessor, Ambika, had the idea to implement the, the book since it's laid out as a 28-day program as a community sitting. So um, that's kind of where the challenge was born. And it's it was originally just a handful of people really kind of here in New York, friends and teachers, and it's just grown a lot since then. So um, one of the kind of cool things is we have groups from different places, um, who like entire companies who are sitting with us. Um, you know, it's it's a real mixture of people um, from Australia, Europe, you name it. It's everywhere and a lot here in New York since this is kind of Sharon's home base. So uh, tonight we're going to hang out and Sharon's going to give a little talk and lead a sitting, um, but also give you guys the floor to ask questions and uh, just kind of, you know, land into uh, the trajectory of the month together. Uh, I feel like there's a few other things I want to tell you about. Oh, we're going to have a raffle at the end of the night. Uh, I have about 15 Real Happiness books, 15 lucky winners. It might be 12. I didn't count them recently. I'm going to say <laughs> I've been a little busy. So 15-ish. Um, and then this uh, recording of tonight's event is going to be available tomorrow, so you don't have to take furious notes or anything like that. Um, I also want to tell you we're going to have other weekly sittings through the month. So each week there's going to be a local gathering and um, more information on that is coming soon. I don't want to bombard you with too much at once here. So um, the last thing before I go is that one of the cool parts of the challenge is on Sharon's blog. We have about... 300 people who are blogging about their experiences through the month. Sharon also is blogging once a week 
and it's just kind of a cool structure there. So each day in your lesson, you'll see like a handful of posts from that day, but there's lots more. So if you have a day off and you're kind of wanting to get deeper into this practice, there's, there's some cool resources there. And it's interesting to see how people we don't even know can be having shockingly a really similar experience to our own in the practice and you know to kind of break through some of those ideas of what we think this is supposed to do what our experience is supposed to be and uh, so it's it's pretty cool and you can get up there and comment and all kinds of good stuff so um, that's it for me for now and I'll leave you to the queen of loving kindness herself <laughs> thank you Thank you. I'm so glad you uh, acknowledged Ambika, who, because this whole thing really was born in her mind. Uh, she said, let's do a challenge. And, and we all said, the people around the book and myself, we said, eh. <laughs> there's so many challenges anyway. <laughs> like, why do another challenge? <laughs> and then it was just this magnificent thing. And, and part of what has made it so great year after year has been this sense of community, which is very real, that that gets developed, um, even from reading or commenting on someone's blog or sitting together with people you don't know. I think it's it's a very great thing. And Lily has worked incredibly hard to get this particular year up and running. So thank you, Lily, who just disappeared. Maybe she's lying down. She needs to lie down. You know, for all the. Uh, seamlessness that appears to hold on, on the outside. Apparently there's somebody up all night working on the website on the inside, you know. Who knew? <laughs> like, things like that existed. Um, but here we are. It's really fantastic. It's the beginning and I'm especially happy to hear about all the people who've never meditated before. And even if you've meditated for 45 years, you can feel for a moment like you've never meditated before. And, uh, you know, I often say that when I first came back from India, which was in 1974, and I came back as a teacher because my own teacher had told me to teach, um, I would be at a party or some social situation and people would ask, as we do, which is weird too, what do you do? You know, we don't say, like, what brings you great joy or what's your favorite color. We say, what do you do? So people, of course, said to me, what do you do? And I said, I teach meditation. And in those days, people would kind of go, oh, that's really strange. And these days, I think in part, certainly because of the research and the science and the um, kind of the lifting of the methodologies into more mainstream languaging, you know, so that it doesn't seem so mystical and esoteric and uh, sort of held in, in belief systems. Um, clearly, many, many more people are, are experimenting and, and trying it out. But I would say one of the common things I hear these days, if I'm introduced as a meditation teacher, is, oh, I tried that once, I failed at it. Yeah. And if it's time, I say, because we believe you cannot fail at it. It's impossible to fail at it because what matters is not so much what you are experiencing. What matters is how you're relating to what you're experiencing. So how much presence, how much balance, how much kindness are you bringing forth in relationship to that, say, sleepiness or restlessness or joy or sorrow? That's the point. So you can't have the wrong experience. You can have an experience you'd rather not blog about, maybe, you know, or, but hopefully not, you know, because uh, really you can blog about anything. But aside from that kind of anxiety about appearances, you cannot have the wrong experience. And certainly as human beings, we do have that kind of social anxiety. In ordinary circumstance, you know, if you left here and ran into a friend and you'd never meditated before and they said, what'd you experience? 
course, we'd all rather say, you know, well, it was a little bit of a struggle in the beginning, but then it was like this peace, this unfathomable peace just <laughs> descended upon me, and then right around the edges, it began to shimmer, <laughs> and the peace turned into bliss, and then it was like peace and bliss and peace and bliss. That's what we'd like to say. We don't want to say my knee hurt, and I fell asleep, and I got bored, but in all truth, not as consolation, but in truth, from the point of view of mindfulness, it doesn't matter. Because the next question is, how were you with that sleepiness, that knee pain, that restlessness? How were you, for that matter, with the bliss, with the peace? So it's all about relationship, right? And you cannot fail at it. But people will often say, if I say to them, why do you think you failed, they'd say something like, I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't keep thoughts from arising. I couldn't keep sleepiness at bay. I couldn't keep anxiety from coming up. But remember, throughout this 28 days, you cannot fail at it. You can't be having the wrong experience. And I hope you will feel free to blog about whatever, those of you who are blogging or commenting, whatever your experience is, because it's not just you. It's never just you. And it is a part of what makes the community so powerful and it can be really honest, you know, and uh, understand that these are natural experiences and, and let's work on how we are with them, each of us. So there are lots of ups and downs. There's some beautiful, wondrous, extraordinary discoveries that inevitably happen through introspection. There are also some disconcerting, difficult um, things that come up. Like I have some friends, for example, I've been close to since my very first retreat, which began January 7th, 1971, in Bodh Gaya, India. And um, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka. It was a 10-day retreat. And I began meditating with that 10-day retreat. I'd never meditated before. And... There was one point where I went marching up to Goenka, which amuses my friends even now, my friends from then. I went marching up to Goenka, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, <laughs> thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was clearly on him, you know? It was all his fault. And, of course, I had been hugely angry, and I didn't know it. But with that degree of introspection, there it was. Right? It was uncomfortable, but it was really important. You know, and that's a part of the meditative life, too. We have these beautiful, wondrous openings, and we have some difficult experiences that come up. And there's a lot of in-between, you know? It's just like another breath, you know? Um, <laughs> it's kind of routine, rep repetitive, you know? So, uh, and this points to the heart of mindfulness as well learning how to be with pleasure differently, you know, so we're really open to it and experiencing it fully, but without that extra thing of trying to own it and possess it and keep it from changing ever. And learning how to be with pain differently so that we're not bringing an old conditioning of shame or anger or isolation and we can have much more compassion for ourselves and others. And learning how to be with neutral experience differently those in-between times that aren't so pleasant and aren't so unpleasant, where it is just another breath, you know? And those are the times most of us, I think, find that we're not, our attention is not awfully trained towards subtlety, that we tend to count on intensity to feel alive. And as soon as it's like just another breath, we kind of snooze or we numb out. So one of the definitions of mindfulness is this very thing being aware of what's happening in the present moment without clinging, like holding on, without condemning, pushing away, and without being deluded, which in this case means that kind of numbness or fogginess, right? Where we're just spaced out, waiting. So this is what we practice. And to practice it well, it kind of implies you need a good array of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience, which happen. Okay? So... The um, ultimate goal, you could say, is to bring 
this kind of awareness to all of our experience. Many, many systems and schools will approach that in a kind of systematic way, a more gradual way. I heard, for example, I never went there, but I heard there was some monastery in Burma where this is the instruction. You go in and they say, be aware of everything. That's it. <laughs> and for me, I know with my kind of mind, never would have worked. Like, what does that mean to be aware of everything? And uh, interestingly enough, I always tended toward teachers that were much more structured, you know, patterned leading up to that. Um, and so that's really how we approach this month. It's how I approach my teaching in general. We start with, even if you've done it a billion times before, it doesn't matter. We start with what is really a foundational exercise, which is trying to deepen or strengthen concentration. And on that basis, we continue to expand and move into mindfulness. So mindfulness, I'm calling that awareness of what's happening in the present moment without adding, grasping aversion or delusion, right? So mindfulness is a relational quality, whether you're looking at something in your body or emotionally arising or thoughts or externally arising. And... The openness of mindfulness is built on the stability of concentration. Concentration just means stability. It's an ability to be centered, to be settled. So say if you're looking at a, a sensation in your body, you're actually really there. How you are feeling about it is the mindfulness part. How you're relating to it is the mindfulness part and the ability to be there and not there and finishing your strategic plan for your organization at the same time, right? So it's that settledness, that centeredness. Classically, it's called one-pointedness of awareness. And, and often it's developed as the first step, you know, a little bit of concentration so we can then launch into a more open awareness. And the classic way, it's not the only way, but is a classic way of specifically deepening concentration is to choose one object of awareness. And that could be anything. It could be the feeling of the breath. It could be a mantra. It could be a sound. It could be an image. It could be a prayer. It could be something else happening in your body. It could be loving kindness meditation, which we'll do later um, in the month. We choose one object of awareness we rest our attention on that object. And that is a very important word, rest. In fact, when I first got Real Happiness back from the editor, uh, and she said, um, you're using the word rest a lot. Are you very tired? <laughs> and I said, well, probably, but that's also the word. Sometimes people feel, say, with the breath, that if they get a stranglehold on the breath, their minds won't wander, and they'll actually wander more. We rest. The Buddha said, we rest our attention lightly, the way a butterfly rests on a flower. So this is an art in itself, is developing that kind of lightness of touch. We rest our attention on a chosen object, and what we find is it doesn't usually stay there. So this was the very first practice I ever got, and it was the feeling of the breath. When I entered that intensive 10-day retreat in India, the first instruction was sit down and feel your breath. And if many of you, as many of you have heard me say, no doubt, I was very disappointed. I thought, feel my breath. I came all the way to India. You know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to wipe out all my suffering? I'd been going to school in Buffalo, New York, and I thought, I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath. <laughs> and then I thought, hey, how hard can this be? And I was like, whoa, this is not so easy. I had thought, okay, will it be like, you know, 800, 900 breaths before my mind wanders into my absolute shock? It was like one breath or two breaths. Sometimes it was four, sometimes it was half a breath, and I'd be gone, and I'd be way gone. 
And this is not uncommon. You know, it's not always that way, but it is commonly that way. And there comes a magic moment when you realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath, which is considered in many ways the crucial moment in the whole technique because that's the moment we have the chance to practice letting go gently. It's what one of my teachers called exercising the letting go muscle. And without rancor toward ourselves, without blaming ourselves, without judging ourselves, bringing our attention back to the feeling of the breath. We let go and we come back. We let go and we begin again, as I'm sure I said nine billion times on guided meditation today. Just let go and begin again. That's the point. So you haven't failed. It's not a problem. You don't have to think, oh, I need remedial work, you know, so I can be with more breaths. It's okay. But that is not that easy. That's a training. That takes some patience and persistence and uh, understanding that that's, that's really okay. That's the point. So we let go and we begin again. So as I said, it doesn't have to be the breath. And here we have some of the many methodologies that exist. The breath, even if you have other meditation practices that you do, very commonly people will devote at least some period of time in a day to using the breath as that kind of primary object or home base. For one thing, as my early teachers would say, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you could be meditating. And then uh, one said very charmingly, the breath is very portable. So let's say you are practicing at home for five minutes a day, I think is how we start, or 10 minutes a day. And you're using the breath as that vehicle for returning to yourself and returning to the moment. So then you're at work and it's crazy and tempers are flaring, and you're starting to get really anxious, you can just breathe, right? Nobody even has to know you're doing it. It's not like you need equipment, or you don't have to sit down and close your eyes and look weird, right? You just rest your attention on your breath, and it brings you back to yourself. That's what you've trained. And in that moment, in that crazy, pressured situation, when you come back to yourself, you come back to your priorities, you come back to your values, you come back to what you care about. It's a powerful moment. So using the breath, if you can, for at least a part of your practice is a good thing. And if you can't for whatever reason, then something else that's also very present, like listen to sound, it'd be the same kind of thing. Feel something else in your body. And we go through some, some variations in, in this first in his first week. So I was once teaching a non-residential weekend somewhere and it was like Saturday morning before lunch and uh, this guy came up to me and he said, how much money would it take for me to offer you for you to promise not to use the word concentration again for the rest of the weekend? Now concentration is the very classic translation so I'm very used to it. So I said to him, let's talk. and. <laughs> Um, I realized that for him, very likely the word concentration had an association of like being really uptight, you know, and trying to like force his, his awareness onto something and resisting and resenting anything else that might come up and it just sounded really stressful. So I said to him, would it work for you if every time I use the word concentration, because that's what I'm used to using, you replaced it in your mind with settled, centered, steadied, like steady your attention on the feeling of the breath. And he said, yeah, that would work. So I said, you just saved yourself a lot of money, <laughs> you know. So it's really like that. Not only do we rest our attention, there's nothing wrong with coming back and coming back. And it can be a more ease-filled exercise than we might normally have it be. And we spend, you know, some time, it's not a really long time, but some time just developing some amount more concentration because our minds tend to be wild. You know, most of us, even if you've never meditated before, you just 
sit down to think something through. And it's not long before you're gone, right? And we go to the past and we go over it and over it and over it and over it. Not in a useful way, which could also happen. This is like usually a completely useless way. Or we go, and or we go to the future and we build these arcs of anxiety, you know, out of nothing. I'm leaving February 7th for Miami. What if it snows? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't look. I don't know. I haven't even thought about it before now. You know, now it's like my whole week is ruined because it's like, <laughs> when do they put up February 7th? Was it supposed to rain tonight? I looked. It's raining. I'm never going to get out. I knew I should have left the 6th. Right? And it's just like, ah. So we find that a lot, right? And what happens in that is that we lose a lot of life's energy because we're just spreading it, we're throwing it all over the place. And so really the nature of developing concentration is gathering. You know, you find your mind somewhere else, you just gather gently, come back, come back. And that will provide a lot of energy for us because we're very empowered by that. That's a lot of juice that could be available to us, but isn't, because we're throwing it away. But we bring it back, and it becomes available to us. And um, we also find that it's very integrating. It's a sense of cohering, of settling, of being centered, of feeling more whole. Just that. This is the beginning, you know? Um, and it is, it is quite powerful in and of itself. So with variations, this is what we really devote ourselves to uh, as we launch into a practice. And it's something we also come back to. It's always funny to describe something in this system as foundational, because I think we're used to being pretty linear. It's like, I did that, you know, I'm done. That's like 101, <laughs> who does that? Or, um, you know, I'm up to, who knows what I'm up to in my operating system, 11 something. Um, <laughs> You know, who thinks about, you know, but it's not like that. We're always going back and kind of renewing that strength and then expanding beyond it and then going back and so on. Okay, so why don't we, uh, if you want to take just a short break to stretch and then we'll sit. Sometimes it's um, fine, you know, that's an actually neuroscience, I am told these days. Uh, the, well, the last thing I heard, sorry of jipping you all out of a minute, but the last thing I heard, which may no longer be true, um, is that nine minutes of mindfulness a day and seven minutes of loving kindness a day will change your brain. So those of you who are strictly following the streaming and doing mindfulness, wait another minute <laughs> and then get up. You don't have to get up the instant that it ends. Um, changes your brain in all the ways we seem to want our brains to change. Um, but sometimes, not always, but sometimes I think sitting longer, if you can, if you have that kind of time, um, first of all, it relieves some sense of pressure. You know, I've got to get something. And also, sometimes, the first few minutes of the sitting are just the most tumultuous you know, you sit down and you think, oh, I forgot to call so-and-so, and I got, you know, what's that sound? I think it's my refrigerator. Maybe my refrigerator's broken. Do they have refrigerator repair people anymore? Is it a different world? Maybe I have to go to Sears and have to, do they have Sears anymore? I don't know, you know. It's really, you know, we're just like, and we're tossed around by it in the beginning because we haven't really settled down yet. And so, that's good, actually. That's considered like a discharge of stress. But let's say that takes three minutes and you sit for four. That's what you've done, right? You've discharged some stress, and you, you're not giving yourself the chance to go deeper. So there's nothing wrong with sitting for four minutes. It's much better than not sitting at all. Much, much, much better. And there's nothing wrong with sitting for eight or nine minutes. But if you have a life, you know, a day that allows you to do a little bit more. Um, you can experiment and just see. 
you know, what what seems to suit your rhythm and, and what uh, feels most helpful to you. Okay, so see if you could sit comfortably right away. There's a certain kind of balance that is talked about with our posture where you want some energy in your body. You want your back straight, but not like so much energy. You're really stiff and uptight. You also want to be relaxed and at ease. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most comfortable, whatever you're accustomed to. If you're really sleepy, it's good to open your eyes, even in the middle of the sitting. With your eyes open, they don't have to be like really wide open, just a little bit open. You can find a spot to rest your gaze, let it go. See if you can feel the place in your body where the breath is strongest or clearest. And this is the normal, natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different. Just however it's appearing. So is that the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen? You can find that place, bring your attention there and rest. See if you can feel one breath. And the actual sensations of the breath. If you're with the breath at the nostrils, it may be tingling, vibration, warmth, coolness. If at the chest or the abdomen, it may be movement, pressure, stretching, release. You don't want to be naming all these things, but feel them. This is where we're resting our attention. And if you like, you can use a quiet mental notation like in, out, or rising, falling to help support the awareness of the breath, but very quiet. So your attention's really going to feeling the breath, one breath at a time. If images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, but they're not all that strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, just let them flow on by your breathing. It's just one breath.
if something comes up and is really strong and it kind of picks you up and takes you away, you get lost in thought or spun out in a fantasy or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. <clears throat> we say the most important moment is the next moment after you've been gone. Once you realize that, you have a chance to gently let go and shepherd your attention back to the feeling of the breath. We let go and we begin again.
I'm curious as to whether you have any questions, anything you'd like to ask about your practice, either the technique or having a practice. Does anything come up for you, anything you experienced, or just a kind of question? Um, whenever someone says to me, watch your breath but don't control it, I find that totally impossible. And I Googled it and found out that thousands of other people find it totally impossible, too. Fortunately, I didn't say that. Um, first of all, uh, just in the refinement of language, which is a little bit um, excruciating in Buddhist psychology, it's really more feel your breath than watch your breath. We often do hear and say watch your breath, but I think a more accurate description of the experience is feel your breath. And um, you don't really have to worry about controlling it. You know, I think for some people there is an almost automatic experience of being somewhat in control of it and you don't want to make it a project to not be in control of it because that becomes the goal. The reason people say that or some version of that is because there are many yogic traditions where you are distinctly controlling your breath. You're breathing in one nostril and breathing out the other, or you're doing, you know, um, uh, abdominal breathing, or, you know, you're, you're very purposefully breathing in a certain place, or you're uh, breathing in a certain depth, or, or something like that. And those are their own kinds of practice. Um, and this is meant to be different than that, where the goal is not to have your breath be a certain way, but the goal is to cultivate awareness. If in that process you find you are somewhat controlling your breath, it doesn't really matter, actually. Um, but you don't want to set out to think it's the same as those other practices, because then you'll feel, first of all, that's what you'll be doing, and you'll also feel bad, you know, like it's not deep enough, it's not free-flowing enough, you know. So tonight when I was... Um breathing and uh, meditating, I, I got a, an ache in my leg. And, um, you know, I, I was trying to feel it over there, you know, not to sort of get into it. And Could you hold it a little closer? Yes, sir. And um, I'm remembering about some of the stories that you wrote about and others where you'd be in these long sitting sessions and you're not supposed to move at all. Don't scratch your nose. Mosquitoes are biting back is killing you and you know this was just a little ache and that was something I had to play with can you address something about managing your body while you're sitting okay managing your body while you're sitting it um a lot of that depends on uh your intention or your aim for that particular sitting um as we move on, like next week, we'll talk a lot more about working with sensation and working with the pain. For now, we're, we're really trying to mostly devote our awareness to deepening concentration. Uh, you might move if it is really difficult for you to keep sitting, or you might uh, see how much you can let go of the awareness of the pain because you're not in this moment uh, mostly trying to explore the nature of pain and how you relate to it. You're trying to concentrate on the breath. You know, so it, it sort of depends on what phase you're in and that will always change when you're home, like what you're, you're mostly trying to do. Um, I understand, I, I guess I said on this stream because uh, someone teased me about it. I use the example, uh, which I like a lot, where I said it's like you see a, a friend in a crowd and you don't have to shove aside everyone else in the crowd, but your interest, your enthusiasm is going, hey, there's my friend. Like, there's the breath. There's the breath. So that would be the first thing we would try. Um, if the pain is too strong or if, your intention is to open to a variety of different experiences, then you might drop the awareness of the breath and just focus fully on the pain. And that becomes a whole uh, technique in itself, you know, how to be with it. The first thing we would say is look for what you might be adding onto it. 
you know, like sometimes just as one example, uh, we feel pain in our bodies and the whole rest of our body tightens up as though to ward it off and then we've added tension to pain. So you might notice that or you might notice the thing I really saw in those days when I was sitting with teachers who told me not to move and I always, always move, by the way, um, <laughs> was that I didn't move because the pain was so difficult. I moved when it was the first little inkling of discomfort because as soon as that happened, I would start thinking, what's it going to feel like in five minutes? What's it going to feel like in 10 minutes? What's it going to feel like in 15 minutes? Oh, no, it's going to be unbearable. And that was, and then I'd give up, right? I'd move. And so the important point isn't moving or not. The important point was seeing that pattern because that was something that didn't just happen when I was sitting in a funny posture on a floor in India. That was very much my pattern with emotional pain, with heartache, with disappointment, with physical pain. As soon as things got rough, I'd start thinking, what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next year? And so I would add all that anticipated difficulty on top of what was actually happening, try to bear it all at once, feel defeated, and give up. That was really crucial for me to see because then I could look for that in all those other kinds of situations and not fall into that so much. So that's the purpose, you know, of... of uh, kind of paying attention to those sort of experiences. You never, ever want to hurt yourself, you know, and so don't do anything crazy. Um, it's not going to matter if you move, really. And ultimately, remember I started out by saying the goal is to be aware of everything? I mean, I've had teachers who would emphasize with me something like, be aware of every movement you make as you shift posture. And as you stand up, that would be more important than being still. You know, but there there are certain benefits. There are a lot of benefits not wiggling just because you're restless, you know, and uh, moving with every little tiny thing because it gives you time to notice those patterns. But not to the point where you're, you know, being reckless or anything. Hi. Um, so what's your opinion on this? Um, you... Uh, if I set out to meditate, and uh, I do have a really strong emotion um, that I'm just, I, I can't let go of it. What do you think about me sitting there anyway, and maybe that thought needs my attention? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm talking about paying attention to it in a certain way, you know, but it's that certain way that makes makes meditation meditation rather than uh, maybe analysis or something like that, which is also maybe a fine thing to do. But within the meditative context, you wouldn't necessarily be concerned with um, what am I going to do about this? Do I need a new therapist? Um, you know, where did this come from? I didn't used to be this way. It's more like what is it right now? What does it feel like? what's within it, um, can I see its changing nature? Although you wouldn't necessarily ask yourself that, you would just be with it so clearly. And you, there's no need to try to get rid of the thought or feeling or make it go away or come back to the breath if it's that compelling. That is your new me meditative object. But uh, it's not quite the same thing as just thinking it through, you know, which is more like reflection or something like that. So if you're wanting to actually use the meditative context, you know, there would be a certain way of, of being with those thoughts and feelings. Um, I had one teacher who was very strong on trying to shift from asking why, like why is this here, to asking what, like what is this? Uh, and it's not wrong to ask why. I mean, that's a whole field of investigation, but within the meditation, it's believed also that to ask why, to answer that inevitably brings up a belief system. And that's not the purpose of the meditation, is to be injecting a belief system. You know, if you asked a Jungian psychologist, they might say one thing. If you asked, um, you know, another kind of psychologist, they might say another thing as to the why. Uh, if you ask someone deeply immersed in a religious system, 
they would have a different answer as to why. Um, and even in the sense of, I once asked a very um, kind of orthodox Asian Buddhist who had a very classical perspective why I was experiencing so much physical pain in my practice. And he said to me, uh, you must have tortured many small animals in a previous life. Great. And I said, well, thank you so much. You know, like, now I not only have the pain, I feel like I'm the worst person that ever lived, you know? Like, but that is a perspective, you know? And that's a belief system. And if you're going to seek an answer from within that belief system, you are likely going to hear something like that. And so it's not considered ultimately that useful. Interestingly enough, twice this week, I've had interviews um, that have involved my, my being asked uh, what I think of God, of the word God. And uh, twice this week, I've said, I don't ever use that word. Uh, just today was one. And, and they said, well, why not? And I said, well, you know, I've been practicing within the Buddhist context for lo these many years, you know, since 1971. And while, you know, my first teacher, Goenka, the first night of that first retreat, he said the, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. So the whole point is not to become a Buddhist or adopt that belief system or anything. The whole point is the practice. But still, I've been, you know, kind of surrounded by that way of expressing things. And, and it's, it's the easiest one for me. And so they say that the Buddha, when he was asked, is there a god or not, a supreme being, he remained silent. He wouldn't answer because they say he lived, and I love this word, he lived in disputatious times. He lived in times where people like to argue philosophy and views and belief systems and sectarian views, and they didn't want to bother getting down to their own experience and paying attention and realize for themselves. They just used to like to fight over concepts. And so I thought, well, we kind of live in disputatious times too, don't we? And so I said to both these people, I said every once in a while, I take refuge in the Buddha's example, you know, and I say, well, what matters to me? What matters to me is the way we live every day and how we are with ourselves and how we are with others and what we understand life to be, and if you want to express that using the word God, that's fine, but it's not going to be natural to me at this point. And, um, you know, I think that tendency just to argue belief systems is so strong that uh, it's kind of an adventure for us to step away from that, you know, and say, okay, what is my experience really? Thank you, awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you for a lovely evening tonight, Sharon, first Thank you. of all. Um, you mentioned that you told Goenka that you didn't know you were such an angry person. Would you want to expand on that a little bit, please? <laughs> In a few moments. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, I was very young, I was 18. Uh, I'd gone to college when I was 16. I went to India when I was 18. And I knew that I was very unhappy, but I didn't really, I had never really looked inside in a constructive way. I'd never been in therapy. I'd never really done uh, that kind of introspection. And so I didn't really understand the different emotions and everything that I was feeling. And then I sat down and I looked and was like, whoa, look at that. Um, and because I was so judgmental, it wasn't like just interest and like, wow, you know, there's so much anger. It was like, I'm so terrible, you know, I'm so awful. How could I feel these things? This is, this is unnatural. This is weird. It must be his fault, you know. If I hadn't come to India, I'd never, you know. So it was just like a lot of um, proliferation, which I'll actually talk about now just for a moment because we just have a few minutes left. Um, because it's a thread that came up in my mind before. So uh, 
once we are really looking at mindfulness and the ability to be with our experience more, uh, we really look at what we tend to add to experience. You know, so that was an example of a lot of proliferation. It shouldn't be here. This is wrong to feel. <laughs> no one else feels this. I never used to feel this, whatever. Um, so the word proliferation is a common translation for a word that is in Pali, which is the language of the original Buddhist texts. And the word is papancha. And I like it because it's like one of the words I think that sounds like what it means, papancha. I think it sounds like popcorn. It means proliferation, or as I heard one translator once call it, the imperialistic tendency of mind, where something happens and the whole world is taken over. So the story I'd like to tell about that is I was teaching with my friend, my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, somewhere, and we were just sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea. And somebody came into the room and was in some distress and said to Joseph, I just had this really terrible experience. So Joseph said, what happened? And he said, I felt all this tension in my jaw. And I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people. That's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he responded with some very elaborate story. And uh, it was very interesting for me, like watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Joseph said something like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like painful enough to feel the tension in your jaw, but you have now added you're going to be alone for the rest of your life. So this is, sometimes we describe mindfulness as looking for the add-ons. They're going to come up, that's just habit. But if we can see them quickly, and we've practiced a lot of letting go, remember, by the time we're doing that, uh, we just let go of them. They don't have to overcome us, right? It's, it is painful enough to feel tension in our jaw. It's not like everything's easy. But we don't need that extra stuff, you know? That's just habit. And it can be really, really corrosive. So we keep looking for what's the add-on and practicing letting go. And it does begin with just letting go of whatever's not the breath. You know, so it's like the same muscle, but we apply it differently. Okay, I'd say please practice, you know. Um, outsit those tapes or... <laughs> and in addition, if you have a few moments in the day, just in the crazy busyness of the day, take three breaths now and then. Uh, it will make a big difference. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>